What a beautiful passage that is. It's been a while since we've been in a, a parable. Jesus often spoke in parables. You see them throughout the Gospels. It's a simple definition of a parable. The short, simple story from everyday life that illustrates greater moral or spiritual truths. Jesus used parables to illustrate truths and principles of the kingdom of heaven, giving insight into God's thoughts, ways, and priorities. Jesus' parables were easy to listen to because the stories were about the familiar things of that day. But they were not necessarily easy to understand because the spiritual truths being taught were only spiritually discerned. He would sometimes end a speaking in parables with these words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For us today, it's the same. Jesus' parables must be spiritually discerned. If we are to understand his word, we must have ears to hear. And having ears to hear, we must hear with them. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the one through whom grace and truth came. I pray that you would impart grace to us now as we open your word desiring to hear and understand your truth. It is your spirit that gives understanding. It is your spirit that gives life. Father, I pray that you would make your servant adequate this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit to speak your words. These words that were first spoken on earth by your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word, when he walked among us almost 2,000 years ago, these words were just as alive now as they were then. Because your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to accomplish your purpose in each life here today. Father, incline our hearts and ears to hear your voice. Reveal your Father heart. Change our hearts to be like yours. In the name of Jesus, amen. There are two important characteristics of Jesus' parables. Our text this morning is found in Luke, verses 11 through 32, often known as the parable of the prodigal son. But before we begin looking at this text, Please turn back with me to Matthew, chapter 13. In this single chapter, we find seven parables spoken by Jesus. The parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure, and the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of of the dragnet. Jesus used these and many other parables recorded in the Gospels to illustrate the truths and principles of the kingdom of heaven, giving his hearers insight into God's truth, his thoughts, and ways, and priorities, if they had ears to hear. I want to highlight from this chapter not the parables themselves, 
but two significant characteristics. One is a characteristic of parables in general. Another is a characteristic of Jesus' parables in particular. First, the general characteristic. There are inherent limitations with the medium of parables. Now, on his face, it may strike you as maybe out of place to speak of Jesus' parables as being limited this way, or in any way. But I'm not referring to a limitation of the power and perfection of his word, but rather the natural language limitation of speaking in parables, which he chose quite purposely, as we shall see in a few minutes when we consider the second characteristic. Because they are illustrations based on familiar everyday scenarios of life, they are not intended to be complete analogies of the kingdom from which to derive systems of theology and such. A quick span scan of the parables in Matthew 13 would show that each parable illustrates only a few related principles of the kingdom. There is no attempt to cover the vast array of spiritual truths of the kingdom of heaven in a single parable. We will look only at one example for illustration of this, the parable of the mustard seed. It's only two verses. This is verse 31 and 32. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This parable illustrates a few things. It illustrates the principle of life, the life of God in one who has received the word of life. Some specific things that we might note are that what really matters is the life that is in the seed, not the size of the seed. We also note that growth will result when the seed of his life takes root. And that as we abide in him and his word abides in us, there is eventually a level of maturity that is visibly demonstrates visibly demonstrates the Lord's life and power and purpose in us. And that maturity also results in us being a source of blessing to others. Those are some things we can draw from from that parable. They're wonderful truths to consider and rejoice in, and there may be others. But nevertheless, this parable is not intended to be a comprehensive, detailed picture of the kingdom of heaven. There are many aspects of the kingdom of God that are not found in this parable. For example... The principle of selling all that we once held dear in order to obtain that which is truly worth everything else. A principle that is illustrated in some of the other parables in this chapter. Also, some things that are mentioned in this parable, for example, the birds which nest in the branches, are not intended to be viewed as major themes or mysterious symbols. In fact, in the parable of the sower, earlier in the chapter, the birds illustrate a very different principle the work of Satan, to quickly steal away the word of God from the hearts of those who have heard it to keep them from believing and being saved. Therefore, we would be wise to take note of this natural limitation of the medium of parables, again, purposely chosen by the Lord, and take care to understand with ears to hear the particular truths a parable is intended to illustrate. 
The second characteristic I want to highlight, which is actually much more significant than the first, is Jesus' specific purpose for speaking in parables, which he reveals in this chapter. Please follow along as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 9. Again, this is Matthew 13. Right after he finishes speaking the parable of the sower, he ends it, really, with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him will more be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So this illustrates that Jesus had a dual purpose for speaking in parables. Summarize it this way. One, to enlighten the poor in spirit, to reveal to them the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, which were previously hidden, to call and teach them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then two, to expose the proud in spirit, who trusted in their own righteousness, whose hearts had grown dull, whose ears were hard of hearing, who were blind yet claimed to see. The poor in spirit who hungered and thirsted for his righteousness, who humbly acknowledged their spiritual blindness and their need of the great physician, were healed of their sickness of soul and received sight to see the kingdom of God. The more they hungered and sought to understand, the more light they received. The proud in spirit who were blind because they had closed their eyes to what they had seen and were unwilling to admit their blindness, They were left in their self-righteousness. Now they were further responsible for what they had heard, judged by their refusal to come to the light because their deeds were evil. Now they were in greater darkness. What little they had was about to be taken away. This is the Lord's dual purpose in speaking in parables. God's ways are sometimes a mystery to us especially when it comes to him judging a people and seeming to abandon them to their own darkness and damnation. But we should be clear about God's heart and character, where he is clear about himself and his word. I want to give some examples here. Ezekiel 33, 11, illustrates the fact that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 
verse 11. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Not only does he not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but you can hear his heart cry. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, We find that he is patient, not desiring that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. I read verse 8 as well. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want to add here, too, that this is one of the verses that some would try to take in the direction of universalism. All would be saved. And yet in this very letter, Second Peter, if we look at chapter 2, verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring destruction, destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. And bring on themselves swift destruction. In verse 12 and 13. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. So as you can see, that's uh, the scripture, verse 9 of chapter 3, is not to be taken that way. Another way he's revealed his heart. His judgments are righteous. And he carries them out with perfect wisdom and justice. And as we saw implicit there in Second Peter 3 verse 9, with perfect timing as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, probably a familiar verse, chapter 32 verse 4. This is one of the verses in the song that Moses sang to Israel after his long discourse. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. There is no unrighteousness in him. So even for the proud in spirit, the Lord Jesus in his day was long-suffering and compassionate. Just as he was with the nation of Israel in the days of Moses. He was continually calling them for any who had ears to hear to humble themselves and return. To become poor in spirit. To recognize their need of the great physician. To come to him to be healed of their spiritual blindness and be restored to right relationship to the Father. Let this sobering passage summarize this truth of Jesus' dual purpose 
in John, Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 39 to 41. This was after Jesus had healed the man born blind, and he had been put out of the synagogue by the leaders. Jesus finds him and lets him know who he is. One of the places, by the way, when he quite clearly declared himself to be son of God, face to face with the man that used to be blind. And he said, verse 38, after Jesus tells him that, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? What an odd question. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. So this is tied into the integral part of Jesus choosing to speak in parables. So recognizing then the Lord's dual purpose for speaking in parables and also bearing in mind their natural limitations, we should avoid reading between the lines or interpreting or stretching a parable to make it illustrate more than what the text actually supports so that we do not water down or misrepresent or miss altogether the main point and purpose. We need to carefully consider and understand the particular truths a parable is intended to illustrate, and we need to have ears to hear. So may the Lord give us grace as we look at Luke 15 now. We want to know what the Lord Jesus was getting at in this parable when he spoke it then, and what he wants to get at today. What are the truths of the kingdom that are being illustrated? What are his primary concerns? What are his priorities? And what should be our response? I really believe that the, this parable that we mark it as beginning in verse 11 is really integral to the parables that precede it. The whole chapter really needs to be seen. And of course, we, we read the whole chapter, but I want to touch on that again. I want to start with verse 1. Read the first three verses here. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Two weeks ago we were in Mark 2, after Levi was called and then had a celebration for all his friends, which happened to be tax collectors and sinners. And as you know, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He had no problem with that. But the Pharisees and the scribes did. And they said virtually the same thing then. And so Jesus' answer was not heard. They didn't have ears to hear. And we don't find out at the end of this chapter whether they had any ears to hear any of them this time. But that's the issue, isn't it? We need to have ears to hear. But because the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, and because 
scribes and Pharisees were complaining. This was not simply, I seriously doubt that they were complaining privately to Jesus. That was not their way. It was purposely, pointedly to degrade tax collectors and sinners. They didn't want to regard them as brothers in Israel. And then verse 3 says, So, because of this, Jesus spoke this parable to them. Note he says this parable. I believe that this is like all one parable here. Verse 4, it starts out, What man of you? And we've read this. I'm not going to read all this again, but just take note how it begins. It begins with, What man of you? And it ends with, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He immediately follows it up with the parable of the lost coin, which begins, Or what woman? Jesus is covering two common everyday situations. And it ends with, it was right, I'm sorry, it ends with, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So essentially the same message he's hammering home here. Joy in the presence of the angels. Joy in heaven over one who repents. The tax collectors and sinners drawing near to him. Why are they doing that? Isn't it because they have ears to hear and they're wanting to? They recognize that they're sick and they need him. They are on their way to having a joyful celebration in heaven. They're moving that direction. Some of them may have already had hearts of faith. We're not, we're not given insight into that. But this is what causes Jesus to speak so strongly and teach so strongly about this. Pharisees ridiculing them when, when they ought to be joyful that they are moving toward God. Then, in verse 11, the passage for this morning, he immediately follows up those other two parables with this, which happens to be the longest parable recorded in the Gospels, by the way. I don't know how significant that is, but I do know that this parable touches on the heart of God as these previous two do. It begins with a certain man had two sons. So, in a sense, it begins with a certain father. And it ends with that father saying, it was right. Really, it's a better translation. It was necessary. That's really what the word is, the meaning there. It was necessary that we should be, make merry, that we should celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So it seems that these three parables then are three thrusts of the same sword by one shepherd. 
The first two parables are geared to different audiences. First to men and the second one to women. But other than that, the two parables are quite similar. Both are short and to the point. Both have conclusions that directly apply to the intended truth to be taught. The same truth, that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then the third parable seems to take on the same main theme, but another related theme toward the end appears. But the format is very different because this is a fairly detailed narrative. It's unusual uh, compared to most parables. So for now, we, we can see three major themes have taken shape. One who was lost. Now in this parable, we'll be looking at now that verses 11 through 32. It's not just a lost sheep or a lost coin, but it's a lost son. One of two sons. This is a very pointed uh, parable speaking toward the Pharisees, one that would consider himself in, you know, a a religious person and and, uh, committed to God versus these nasty old tax collectors. So the major themes are the lost son, the father's heart of compassion for the lost son, and the father's joy over the return of the lost son. At this point, I would like to make a change to the typical title given to this parable. As you know, it's usually called the parable of the prodigal son. I believe we ought instead to call it the parable of the lost son, in keeping with the other parables. So we now have three interconnected parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Now, I confess, this is not my bright idea. Somebody beat me to it. It's actually right in the headings of my Bible. (laughs) I have a New King James Version, and they have headings. So it's right there. But I immediately agreed, especially when you consider some things that we'll, we'll take note of as we move along. Because this parable isn't primarily about prodigal living. Primarily, primarily about a lost son being found. Now, if someone was going to make a movie of this story, marketed to the typical moviegoers of today, then the title, The Parable of the Prodigal Son, would be appropriate. Appropriate to the emphasis and the time and the graphics we might reasonably expect to be devoted to that portion of the story. in the movie fair of the day. But that is not how this story is told. Because Jesus is telling it. And he is telling it from the perspective of the father heart of a holy God. And though the story is focused on the outward wayward son as the one who was lost, ultimately isn't also the story of our rescue from sin's domination and damnation? Brothers and sisters, may we never forget where we have come from 
and treat lightly our great salvation. May we never treat flippantly or crudely, either by our own conversation and actions or by willing observation of others' unholy conduct in any form. The awful paths of sin we or others have wandered. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 has something to say to us in this regard. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. May the plainly observable balance of priorities in this parable guide us in all our interactions with one another and with people outside the church who need the Lord as much as we do. So as we move along, take note, please, of the balance of how much time and emphasis and detail is given to the different aspects in this parable. It's really instructive for us. For in regard to the lost, to the son's lost condition, it is the heartache of his lostness and his awakening to his condition rather than his prodigal living that is the major emphasis. And considering the emphasis on the lost in all three of these parables and the fact that the parables are Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the scribes' complaints about him welcoming the tax collectors and sinners, doesn't it seem that he intends for the tax collector or sinner to be seen as the lost son and the Pharisee as the older son in this parable? Since this parable is mostly a narrative, we will read and consider it in four sections. One, the lost son's waywardness and eventual return, verses 11 through 20. The father's compassion and joy, verses 20 through 24. The older son's angry reaction and self-righteousness, in verses 25 through 30. And the father's response, verses 31 32. So beginning at verse 11, I'm going to read down through 20, first part of 20. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journey journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. That's it. That's all the detail we get on the prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose 
and came to his father. It seems that he did this immediately. So, in this passage, it moves quickly. The son demands his inheritance. Verse 12. This would likely have been one-third of the estate. The typical practice then was the oldest son got double portion. He packs up and leaves with it. Verse 13. In verse 13, he's enjoys his prodigal living for a season. And then the bottom drops out. He's in severe want. The famine in the land. Finally in verses 17 through 19, he comes to his senses. And he begins to contrast his miserable condition to the lowliest servant at his home. In contrast to the previous parables, which were addressed to what man of you and what woman, the father in this story is at home. He's not out searching for his son. But isn't there an unseen father in heaven? Seated on his throne, everything under control. Seeing to it that sin's season of fun is short-lived and that its satisfaction turns to deprivation and despair. Finally, for the purpose that the lost one comes to himself, comes to his senses. And it would seem that the father in this story as it were, doing double duty, seems to be indicative of the Father in heaven. Especially when you consider the the joy aspect that aligns with the previous two parables. So, the son arises and returns. And as soon as the lost son makes a move to return home, the Father's heart of compassion takes center stage. In verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. All these were signs of sonship and separating him from the servants. And bring the fattened calf here, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. It's interesting to note, in just a few chapters over in, 19, chapter 19 of Luke, is the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector. And Jesus, we see a gracious response to him. And there's an element there I noticed that Zacchaeus made a move toward Jesus. 
Jesus made a move toward him. Threw open the doors of salvation to him. And reading verse 9 and 10 then, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he, he also is a son of Abraham. I think that's very important to our understanding of this parable. So we see later the older son does not treat him that way. But Jesus is declaring that yes, he too, this miserable tax collector, is a son. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. So we see the father's joy over the return of the lost son. And then a sad response from the older son. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father. This translation says, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I I think I noticed in the translation that Bud was reading. I think that's a lot more indicative of the, the tone and attitude. Look. He was addressing his father that way. Look, these many years I have been serving you. That word serving, it's related to the Greek word you might be familiar with, doulos. It's a form of that. He'd been slaving. That's how he's saying, I've been slaving for you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Besides whatever else we could say there, did he know that? He went into a far country, squandered his wealth. Did he know that? Maybe word had gotten back through the grapevine. Is that reliable? His whole attitude was one of just full of self-righteousness. He had been faithfully slaving. He had never transgressed a commandment at any time. Kind of doubt that. Especially given the way he just addressed his father. And yet, how did the father respond to him? Graciously. Just like he responded to the lost son that came home. Except for there's no joy. And he said to him, verse 31, Father said to him, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. He didn't realize what he had. He'd been slaving instead of being a son. Entering into the joy of being a son of his father. This is standing for the the heavenly father. And this is, he represents the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee. Who is blind. And can't hear. The father said it was right, it was necessary that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and alive again and was lost and is found. So, besides the common themes of the first two short parables, we have these additional ones. Not only the passion and joy of the Father, which is the joy of the Heavenly Father when a sinner repents. But we have the priority of the Father's joy over the return of the lost Son. It took priority over the Son that was already there. To the point where the Father is addressing him and saying, it's necessary and he says, it's necessary for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. It's necessary for the one that is already at home to rejoice with the Heavenly Father. That's one of the lessons of this parable, I believe. In a very real sense, each one of us is, has, has been a lost son, is or has been. All we like sheep have gone astray and gone our own way. Like the younger son, we all from Adam on down have gone our own way. We've taken the father's blessings and resources, stored up for his good purposes, and spent them on our own pleasures for a short season. I know how short that season is in light of eternity. But if he has brought us home, we need to not lose the preciousness of what has been accomplished in bringing us home and be ready to fully enter in to another coming home. Surely this would also affect how we view others who need the Lord. If we recognize how, how much joy it gives the Father in heaven, we ought to take that on. Taking on the Father's heart is, I think, what is an application for us to take from this today. It's an aspect of Delighting in the Lord. Delighting in everything that delights Him. Whatever pleases Him, let us make it what pleases us. And whatever we need to, to cut off, 
let us do it. Something I want to, uh, another connection I want to point out we see in this, in the, in the older son. When we consider how much time we spent recently in Jonah, did you make that connection as we were reading that? Jonah didn't appreciate the invites any more than Pharisees appreciated the tax collectors and sinners, any more than the older son appreciated the son of the father that he was unwilling to call his brother. And yet, God was merciful to the Ninevites and then continued to work with Jonah to correct him, to teach him. And we see just a glimpse of that here. The parable ends. But if you can imagine that the father is going to continue to work on that older son if he is willing to hear. So we need to take care that, that we have an ear to hear. What do you do if you think you don't have an ear to hear? Does anyone have any ideas of what you might do? Pray. That would be a good step. And I want to make this connection here to verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. It's a real good first step. And there's a, there's a prayer that would come with that, yes. But draw near. Does, does our Heavenly Father want us to have ears to hear? Does he want us to see? Is he willing that any perish? Is that his desire? We know that some do. Some don't see, some don't hear, and don't want to. And they die in their sins. But God's cry is, turn, turn. Why will you do that? Why would you die in your sins? Don't think for a minute that you're somehow an exception to God's desire that no one would perish. Draw near. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Let's read that passage in James. Chapter 4, beginning of verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore he says... God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The younger son humbled himself in the sight of the Lord and was lifted up. 
lifted up to sonship, forgiveness, celebration, joy in heaven. The Father desires to have a celebration of joy for every single one of us. Let us not forget that. Father, I thank you for this parable, for the lessons it has. There are probably many lessons that could be gleaned that were not touched on. But the one that seems so central is your heart for the lost and your joy when the lost returns. I thank you, Lord, that you were willing to die for us and draw us, to draw all men to yourself. I thank you that you turn no one away. We'll give you praise, Lord, because of your graciousness, your great love with which you loved us. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this message, this central thought to each heart here and each heart that listens. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.